for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you remain standing just for one more moment? It won't be long. So may we be good hearers and better doers. May we love Jesus deeply. May we trust what Jesus says. And may we follow Jesus well. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Heat wave is coming, y'all. I don't know who was praying for sun, but Jesus answered and (laughs) you went a little overboard, TBH. You were dead. That's a rough start. There's nothing more final and nothing more helpless than being dead. And that's how Paul labels these Gentile followers of Jesus, which seems kind of odd to me at least because these people, they never died. He's talking with them. So how could they have been dead? That's a question that gets raised from the page three of the Bible. Scripture says that from our beginning, we humans were made by God for good works. Humanity has always been offered a choice to trust God's care for them and receive life as a gift from the source of life himself, knowing that if we try to take life on our own terms, we'll end up dying. But unfortunately, the pattern has been that humans from Adam and Eve to us struggle with trusting. They rebel and take for themselves, but they didn't die, or at least it doesn't look like it. Scripture seems to argue that there is more than one way to be alive and more than one way to be dead. You can be alive or dead, alive or dead physically, and you can be alive or dead relationally with God. We humans, we're made to be connected to and in relationship with God. So when we don't live connected to God or when we don't live in God's vision of a good life, we're dying and die. Not always in the ways that we notice quickly, but in the ways that are most vital. What happens when an object is not connected to life or when a person is removed from life support or when a leaf isn't connected to a tree or when a phone is disconnected from its power source, it is dying and or dead. So we can be alive and alive like a phone plugged in and charged, alive but dead like a phone plugged in but at 0%, dead but alive like a phone unplugged but still with a charge or dead and dead, the double death, like a phone unplugged and without a charge. Tracking with me? 
sort of? Okay, beautiful. Paul, he's a Jewish pastor, and he says that you, or in the South, y'all, Gentiles, those who aren't Jewish or the nations outside of Israel as a whole, y'all were dead, cut off from connection with true life. And he'll go on to say that there are three major contributors to this death. To be dead is to be under the power and on the trajectory of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the enemies leading us to death. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, living life disconnected and on your own terms. Even though your bodies are functioning, you're not really living. You're like the walking dead, dead on the inside and headed to the double death. You're stuck in subhuman ways of being, patterns, habits, sins, compulsions. You're living below the mark. It's death, it's killing you, verse two. And you're stuck walking according to the age of this world. Walking is how the scripture often talks about living, following, or going down the course. Write that down and remember that for now. Walking, it's how the scripture talks about living, following, or going down the course. The world in scripture sometimes means humanity as a whole, who God loves. Like for God so loved the world. God loves humanity. But here, the world is a shorthand for the ideas values, practices, and social norms that are institutionalized in a culture organized around the twin sins of rebellion against God and redefinition of good and evil. The world is society organized outside of God and therefore disconnected from true life. Often what the world calls or what society calls culture, the scripture calls the world. Bringing this together, one scholar put it, whenever human beings are dehumanized by political oppression or bureaucratic tyranny, by an outlook that is secular, repudiating God, amoral, repudiating absolutes, or materialistic, repudi- or glorifying the consumer market, by poverty, hunger, or unemployment, by racial discrimination, or by any form of injustice, there we can detect the subhuman values of this age and this world. Their influence is pervasive. People tend to not have a mind of their own, but to surrender. The scripture is making a claim about the age and the world we live in. Our culture, politics, education, art, entertainment, and cities have a way that they want us to fall in line with. It's not neutral. And if Paul is right, it's influencing us, and it's inescapable. He goes on to say, verse two, you walked according to the ruler of the authority of the air, the spirit who is working in the sons of disobedience. The ruler of the authority of the air is Satan. It's the Satan, the devil, the accuser, or the enemy. He's a deceiver, a liar, a thief, and a murderer. He's the antagonist of God's story. Paul says that there is something in the air, there's a spirit, a pneuma, at work in the sons of disobedience, animating and energizing what is happening in our world, which for a lot of us is probably hard to trust. Christian, are you actually saying that there is a devil or demons doing stuff behind the scenes? Do you really think that there is a supernatural world that impacts people, cities, nations, even Portland, me, or my family? Really, Christian? It's 2022. Yes, I trust that wholeheartedly. And the writers of scripture seem to as well. Now, I don't personally look for a devil under every rock. Some people, they see every bad thing as the work of a devil or some evil spirit when sometimes life is just hard or you did something stupid, you know? As my wife would tell me. There isn't a devil under every rock, but there are some rocks that got a little something under it. 
One of the greatest intellectuals of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, argued that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our human race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Theologian Walter Wink put it, the spiritual powers are everywhere around us. Their presence is real and inescapable. The issue is not whether we believe in them, but whether we can learn to identify our actual everyday encounters with them, what Paul called discerning the spirits. The Western worldview, which is, by the way, a way to view life, not the way to view life, seems to trust that humans are the only participants in this world. But I'd argue that most of the world trusts that there are supernatural beings participating as well. The question for most cultures is not, do you think there are supernatural forces at work for good and evil in the world, but rather, what are you going to do about it? Now, to be fair, just because the majority of humans who have ever lived, including myself, hold this view of the supernatural doesn't actually make us right. But I question why so many trust the West's claim over the last few centuries that everyone else is wrong about the supernatural and that the West is right. That's a pretty strong claim to trust and then bank your life, your family, and your city on. My personal take is that the West view is a little simplistic and even culturally narrow. To this end, Walter Wink also wrote, it's a virtue to disbelieve in something that does not exist, but it's dangerous and arrogant to disbelieve in something simply because it exists outside our current limited categories. Scripture makes a claim about the way the world really works. There are spiritual beings doing evil in the world and and hold humanity under their power and influence, and we are stuck. Verse three, among whom we also used to live according to the passions of our flesh. Paul was talking to the Gentiles, calling them you, but now he switches to talk to the Jews by saying we or us. He says that the Jews were stuck in their passions of the flesh, their disordered desires and cravings and rebellion to God, and in the futility of their minds. He's talking about the thoughts, bodies, emotions, desires, and actions that are disconnected from what God made them for. The flesh and the mind, they have a will of their own. As Paul says, we don't do the things that we want to do, and the things we want to do, we don't do. Have you ever experienced that in your life? There's something going on here. The scripture is making a claim about the way the world really works. And in just two verses, Paul sums up that humanity has three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These three are in opposition to God. They cut us off from God and are killing us, and we're stuck with them. Verse 3. All of this left both Jews and Gentiles as children of wrath. Wrath. Yep, wrath. Let's say it out loud together and hopefully like it'll ease the tension. Here we go. Wrath. That was so, y'all. No, no, no. All together now. Wrath. There we go. Hold up. I thought Bridgetown didn't really do like the wrath sort of thing. I thought y'all were the God loves you, let's fight injustice and take a nap on Sabbath sort of church. Not the wrath, fire and brimstone sort of people. If that's what you're wondering, just stay with me for a moment. Wrath. Let me tell you a story about my wife. (laughs) A week ago, me and my wife, Yinka, were in the car. And to keep the story short, we got into what some would call a tiff. And by tiff, I mean that we had to pull the car over on the side of the road and hash everything out before we went into our friend's house a little late. And we put on that, no, we weren't just fighting face. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. 
Someone said, come on, yep, just stare at me, don't look at your, anyway. After about an hour or however long time was in that moment, we finally came to accept that we were seeing the world from different places. We were using words differently and having triggering experiences of each other. The takeaway, I have to make sure that I'm not imposing my definitions or experience of the world onto my wife. Otherwise, I won't really understand her. The same goes with learning how to relate to God and the writers of scripture. We have to ask, what does wrath mean to them? The story of scripture is that God made this world and it is good. He made humans for good works. He wants beauty, life, and human flourishing. But people, communities, governments, and spiritual beings are constantly bringing about destruction, injustice, suffering, and evil. God will not force anyone into making his world good and beautiful, but he also will not allow anything to just go on. At some point, he will clean up the world and remove everything that chooses to be in hostility to him and his beautiful world. N.T. Wright put it this way, the great evils of the 20th century have to have reminded us that unless God remains implicably opposed to the evil that distorts and defaces creation, not least humanity, God is not good. Paul's whole theology is grounded in the robust, scripturally rooted view that the creator is neither a tyrant nor an absentee landlord, but rather the creator and lover of the world. The result is God's wrath. Wrath is the shorthand for God's anger in response to evil, and it's based on God's deepest character traits of compassion and love. To talk about wrath is to say that God is not neutral about evil, whether in the individual or corporate, the familial or the national, the natural or the supernatural. The way scripture most often talks about wrath is not God throwing down lightning bolts like Zeus or putting, down, or putting people in a state of torture that never ends, which by the way, isn't the scripture, it's Dante's Inferno. Wrath is actually God's handing people whom he loves over to their own consequences. It's him finally saying, I see what you want. You can have the end result of what you're after. God gives people and societies over to their destructive choices and self-ruin. What happened? When that happens, they're under God's wrath. Now, the line children of wrath is just a Hebrew idiom that basically means being under that category. To be a daughter of or a son of is to be associated with that group or under that category. Paul calls the Ephesians sons of disobedience twice, and later in the letter, he calls the church children of light. Jews and Gentiles were all children under that category, people who God is handing over to their own self-destruction children of wrath. Any ideas of God's wrath or his character as being impulsive, unpredictable, or flaring are untrue. Those thoughts about God are lies. They're the devil's weapon against you. God's wrath isn't arbitrary or impersonal. It's actually his long-suffering, meticulous, and patient response to every form of evil. It's, as some scholars have put it, his, his hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. It is nuanced and frequent and revealing of his love. The scripture makes a claim that we need to wrestle with. All humans, every one of us in this room, Jews and Gentiles, you and I, we're in a predicament. We're under the boot of the world, the flesh and the devil. They are our enemies. They aren't neutral. They are killing us. You and I are dying and we're dead and we can't do anything to get out. We're helpless. And there are very few things worse than being helpless, than being stuck, than knowing there's a problem and not being able to get out than being caught, trapped, and trying, but to really no avail. Helpless to really fix our city. Helpless 
to really fix ourselves. But God. Some say the whole story of the scripture could be summed up in just two words, but God. Helpless, but God. Stuck, but God. Desperate, but God. Y'all, and if I was in my grandmother's church, this would be the end of the sermon right here. (laughs) Done. We'd be done. Reverend would be just like wrapping it up. All I would have to say is turn to your neighbor, look him dead in the eye, and tell him, but God. Actually, turn to somebody and do it real quick. Just turn to somebody, slap him on the side, say, but God. I've only been a part of this church for right under two years, but I know some of the but God stories here. They would say, didn't have a friend, but God. Almost lost my mind, but God. Doctor said it was over, but God. Couldn't find our way, but God. At our worst, but God. Stuck in patterns of sin, but God. Stuck in the self-destruction, but God. Under the influence of the world, but God. Under the power of the devil, but God. But God intervened, but God showed up, but God came through, but God helped out, but God made a way. The summary statement, the summary statement of scripture may just be, but God. Has anybody in here experienced, is anybody thankful for the intervention of God in their lives? Paul goes on to say, God, yes, we can praise God for that. Paul says that God is rich in mercy. Mercy being that he doesn't give us what we deserve. Over and over, the scripture proclaims that God is full of mercy. And the thing is, he's not just merciful. It says he's rich in mercy. It means he doesn't run out. Like the credit card, it never gets tapped, doesn't. Ooh, you don't have enough funds. No, no, no. He's rich in mercy. Verse four. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love that he has for us. God is a God who is great in love. His posture is always love for people, creation, and his world. That's how he operates. Everything about him is loving. Even the things that are hard for for us to understand, they flow from his love. That's why Paul prays that this church would understand the height, the width, the depth, and the breadth of God's love. He prays that the church would be able to know God's love, not just from the head, but from experiencing it for for themselves. God is rich in mercy, and he's great in love. Now notice how before Paul explains what God has done, he tells the church who God is. Let me say that one more time. Notice how before Paul explains what God has done, he tells the church who God is. So while we're thankful for God's activity, may we never lose sight of his character. Actually, I'll go on to say that you can never fully understand God's actions without truly knowing his character. God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in covenantal love and faithfulness. That's who God is. So what does God do? It's at the moment that we were dead and helpless that God interrupts the story. God intervenes. God shows up. Verse five, he made us Jews and Gentiles alive together with the Messiah. Translations of Paul's Greek into English often leave us missing some things that bring the text alive beautifully. Paul was saying to you or y'all Gentiles and then to we and us Jews. But here he shifts it again. The we and us become about Jews and Gentiles together. The church, the family of God, the new humanity. Paul says that God made us, Jews and Gentiles, alive. The problem was that we were dead in sins and headed toward death. God's solution is that he took on sin and subjugated himself to death in Jesus. And by raising Jesus from the dead, like we sang about earlier, God beat the power of sin and death. God made Jesus alive. And anyone who is with Jesus can get in on that too. 
Verse six, and he raised us, Jews and Gentiles, up together with the Messiah. Now, I think Paul may be differentiating between made alive and raised here. Even though they're similar, when Jesus was made alive, he beat sin and death. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, he, as king, inaugurated a whole new age, an age where death doesn't have the final word. Jesus being raised is the end of one age and the beginning of another. So to follow Jesus means we start to see the world as a war, as a war between two ages and two kingdoms and two eras, the present age and the age to come. The present age is one of evil, sin, suffering, violence, and death, which we see in our lives and in our city every day. The age to come, though, is one of justice, of love, life, freedom, peace, and flourishing for all people, which I think each of us longs for. I think it's what Portland longs for. This is what those who walk with Jesus can be a part of. That's the sort of kingdom that we can live out of and into. We're like ambassadors. We live in one world, but we walk differently. We have a different vision of human flourishing, different values, different norms, and a different ruler. While this is our home, this is not where our citizenship comes from. We are citizens of a different kingdom, and, it, and, and it's our home. To be raised is to be dead to the old age and alive to the new. It means that we actually trust that Jesus' kingdom has and is breaking into this one, that Jesus' rule is pushing out the old rulers, and that right now we are in transition between the old and the new. A new age is breaking in, and we're a part of it. And I know that sounds wild and crazy and politically charged, because it is. He made us Jews and Gentiles alive. He raised us, Jews and Gentiles, up. And this is my favorite one, verse six. He sat us, Jews and Gentiles, together in the heavenlies with Messiah Jesus. Y'all, thinking about this for the past week is actually changing me. And I don't mean that as like a weird preaching metaphor. It's actually doing something in me. Do you know what it means to be seated with Christ? Paul in Ephesians 1 said the Father seated Jesus in the heavenly realm above all rule, authority, power, dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. The Father seated Jesus in the heavenly realm. Hold that in your minds. A friend called me last week and asked about how Portland is doing. I realized that before living here, I used to see hurt and brokenness, sin, injustice, pain, polarization, and evil as just kind of brokenness, problems that people cause but I don't really see it that simply anymore. There's no way that I can explain what I see each day looking out of my apartment window or running in my neighborhood or sitting in a restaurant with my wife or walking to the movie theater downtown as just people problems anymore. I can't explain what I see and experience and feel and know without the reality of spiritual evil. I know somewhere deep within my bones that we experience, that what we experience here in Portland isn't only injustice, or brokenness, or outrage, or poverty, or sin, or mental health, or you name it, I know deep within myself that the issues of our city, they're animated, fueled, boosted, perpetuated, and energized by something so much stronger and something so much more sinister than people. It's spiritual. I know it, and I think deep down you do too. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that every problem, whether personal or societal, is because of the devil. I'm not abdicating individual or corporate sin, brokenness, or responsibility. What I am saying is that so much of the evil in our city and world is animated by what the scripture calls the demonic, the principalities, the powers, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And it makes me mad. 
Like genuinely, it frustrates me. I drive in the car with Yinka all the time and I'm like, ah, that freaking snake. The snake's ruining lives and making a mess and running amok of our city and it's been for too long. Which is why this line from Ephesians is burning in me. Jesus is king, seated on a throne in the heavenlies, above everything in the air. Jesus is above all principality, power, rule, authority, and dominion. He's above these evil forces at work in our world. That's a huge claim, but it gets even wilder. Paul says that Jesus is seated above all that, and then he says that those who follow Jesus are seated there too. You are seated with Christ. The powers that were once above us with Jesus, they no longer are above us. We're no longer stuck under them. We're above them. We're seated in heavenly places with them. All things have been placed under Jesus' feet, under his authority. So So with the Messiah, we are seated above the gods of Portland, principalities in Portland that have taken up space and dominion, powers in Portland that Jesus has handed an eviction notice out of his world, but they're still running amok while they still can. We are seated above them, which also means that here and now, we can join Jesus in saying to the demonic, enough is enough. I think that part of the responsibility of being with Christ in this city is to take up some spiritual authority for our city right here, right now, in this time. Paul says that we sit in the heavenlies. And do you know where he says that from? He says it from prison. Paul is in prison, and yet he's in Christ. And maybe in some similar ways, you are too. Once dead, now seated. Notice two things Paul says that I think are often missed. First, being alive, raised, and seated is together. Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, male and female, rich and poor, are now a family together. This is the new humanity that Jesus inaugurated on display. Paul is not focused on individuals, but on the community, the people of God. They have been made alive together. They have been raised together. They are seated together. Second, being made alive, raised, and seated together is with Christ. Say that out loud, with Christ. Earlier in the letter, Paul prays and says in Christ, but now he says with Christ. This is about being with him. And anyone who went to high school can attest that association matters. There can be guilt by association or gain by association. She's dating him. He's with her. Who we are with can determine what we get. Association can grant access. So to be a follower of Jesus means that we are in Christ and we are with Christ. We are associated with him. And what's true about Jesus, our Messiah, becomes true about us. Jesus was made alive and so are we. Jesus was raised and so are we. Jesus is seated and so are we. What's true about Jesus becomes true about us. That's what it means to be with him. And let me just talk to followers of Jesus in the room for a moment. I think that many of our problems exist because deep down we either don't know or we don't really trust that we are with Christ. We don't really know and we don't really trust that we've been made alive, raised and seated. We check it off the box theologically, but we don't walk in it experientially. We don't really know what we have access to, so we live a sub-life and we live below what we're designed for. We live in the air. And it's like my friend who was in town last week. I gave him a key fob to get into me and Inca's apartment because he was staying over, but he forgot that he had it. So he sat outside the building. When we don't realize or trust what we have access to, we end up stuck. And the sad part is that we're not stuck because we don't have access to what we need, but because we forget we already have access. 
My wife said this morning, it's like going to war in flip-flops. So maybe that's why Paul prays earlier in Ephesians 1 that God's people would know, they would know and experience the surpassing greatness of his power toward those who trust in Messiah Jesus. That prayer tells me that it's possible to live unaware of what we already have access to. Paul wants us to access all that it means to be with Christ. Paul is speaking in the present tense, by the way, not the future. This is who we are. Not just the future, this is who we are. And hear me, when Paul says who we are in Christ or with Christ, he's not speaking in like hyperbole or saying a metaphor. And I think it's a lie in the scheme of the enemy for followers of Jesus to think that realities are just metaphors. Paul is saying that the truest thing about you is what is true about Jesus. You are in Christ. You are with Christ. And again, this is not just about you individually. This is about us, who we are as a community. This is our truest identity as a people. What is true about Jesus is true about us. Verse seven, he did all this so that in the ages which are coming, he could display the surpassing richness of his grace by his kindness to us. Again and again, Paul keeps getting swept up in the character of God. The surpassing richness of his grace, that's what he's like. God is displaying his kindness, that's what he's like. And the whole cosmos is going to know it in the age to come. And then comes that famous line, verse eight, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Notice that the audience has shifted once more from we to you. Paul goes from talking about the new humanity, Jews and Gentiles together, to just talking to Gentiles one more time. He's reaffirming what God has done for this group in particular. You Gentiles have been saved by grace through faith, no matter what anyone else says. Saved. In Greek, the word is sozo. It means to heal, save, deliver, or rescue. Paul is pleading that that what humanity needs is not just help, but absolute rescue and complete healing. We're in a life or death scenario and can't escape on our own. We need to be taken from the old predicament into something completely new. To be saved is for God to make us alive together, raise us up together, and seed us together. Salvation is about more than just our past. It's also about our present and our future. It's about more than just having sins forgiven. It's about entering into a whole new life, community, mission, kingdom, and way of being human, saved. By grace. Grace is a gift. God's rescue is a gift. But there's a common misnomer that's used about grace that I'd like to push back on just a little. So please refer all your questions and emails to Hakeem or Gerald. (laughs) What I understand in Paul's mind is that grace is unconditioned, but grace is not unconditional. And I'll let that sit. Grace is unconditioned as in the gift is given to somebody without merit, earning, or proving. But grace is not unconditional because the gift actually has expectations. In the ancient Near East and in many cultures today, there is a different understanding around gift giving. For most in the West, a gift is most pure and at its best when it has nothing attached to it. But in other cultures, including Jesus's and Paul's, gifts come with an expectation for response. Gifts are given out of the desire to establish a connection and build a relationship of reciprocity. For example, think of Jesus' teachings on forgiveness, forgiveness, both in the Lord's prayer and in his parable. Those given the gift of forgiveness are expected by Jesus to forgive. Now I get that the notion of grace being unconditioned but not unconditional can feel jarring. It's a common misnomer. It may rub some of our Western worldview the wrong way because of how we think about gifts and grace. Yet I'd kindly submit to you that Paul doesn't seem to have any problem with it. It's what he's actually trying to get at. 
God is rich in mercy, deep in love, surpassingly gracious and deeply kind. The gift he has for us is so good, so needed, so lavish, and so kind. It's an invitation into a family and a partnership, and it's so much better than our response could ever be. I found from my own experience that anything God wants for me actually is for my good or for the good of the world that he loves. Paul is saying that God has a gift for you. It's unconditioned. You didn't earn it at all. It's out of his love for you. The gift brings you into relationship and partnership with him, into his family, into his kingdom, into life. And it comes with an expectation and response. God gives this gift in hopes that people would respond with loyalty and trust or through faith. The Greek word is pistis, which means, which a more helpful way of understanding it would be trust. God's rescue is a gift that is received through trust. Verse nine, this is not from yourselves, it's God's gift. Remember, this is communal language. So that no people, so that no one group of people, Jew or Gentile, can boast about it. And after a hot mess of run-on sentences, here is Paul's long-awaited conclusion. I know you're ready. Let's read it out loud all together. It's on the screen. For we are his handiwork, created in Messiah Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Paul wants the new humanity to see that they are God's handiwork. We are his poem, his sculpture, his building project, his movie, his garden. We are his product. We are his song. Most of my life, whenever I hear these lines from Ephesians 2 about being saved by grace through faith, I'd feel good. And I'd think, wow, look at what God did for me, which is true, but it's missing a point. He isn't saying this so Christians can feel good about themselves or their community. Paul is after how we, as Jesus followers, walk. There's that word again. We are his handiwork, created for good works so that we would walk in them. Like I mentioned, walking is about all of life. It's about how we live and behave. Paul starts and ends this paragraph talking about walking. He can't stop talking to these Jesus followers about how they walk. Um, And so listen to these scriptures that Paul says in Ephesians. You used to walk in transgressions and sins. I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you've received. No longer walk as the nations do in the futility of their mindset. Walk in love just as the Messiah loved us and gave himself. Watch carefully how you walk. You were once in darkness, now walk as children of light. The saving grace of God comes with an expectation. God rescues us from one way of walking so that we would walk in a whole new way. Walk in what? Good works. The good works that God prepared since the beginning. And family, I want in. Do you? Actually, think about it. Do you want in? I don't want to miss out on what God's doing. I can feel it. He is doing something, not just in our church, in our city. I don't want to miss out on what's available. I don't want to miss the fullness of walking with God. I don't want to just say, I'll pray for you anymore. I want to lay hands on the sick. I don't want to just be fine with normal. I don't want to just follow the current. I want what, Paul's pray, pray, what Paul prays for at the end of chapter one. I want to experience the surpassing greatness of his power working in those who trust. Could you imagine if we as a people began to really live into this? Like, let your imagination run wild for a second. I think, I really think that in this next year of the life of our church, God is going to invite us, almost like double dog dare us, 
to be bold in some new ways, to step out in some new ways, to pray in some new ways, to trust in some new ways, to risk in some new ways. So buckle up. And what if a handful of people, like of different backgrounds, ethnicities, and socioeconomics, what if we really trusted that we were made alive together and raised together and seated above all that nonsense together? What if we walked in a whole new way with a whole new authority, knowing who we are with Christ? What if God really did place us here in Portland right now on purpose? As I've thought about my own life, um, I've had many times when I'm like, Jesus, why did you bring me to Portland? I loved my life in Seattle. And it's a hot mess here. <laughs> the food's better, but it's a hot mess here. But God, like, I gave up so many friends and family and community and a great job and a great community. And often I'm like, God, why? Like, I know good things are happening, but God, really? And it's when I feel like the Spirit gently whispers Ephesians back to me. What if God really did place us here on purpose with the intent of good works? What if you right now and us right now as a community are here in Portland, I keep saying right now on purpose, like right now, not for the future, right now, for good works. I want to find out. So here are a few invitations for the coming weeks to embody this here in Portland. There, there ended up being seven options because, you know, that feels extra Jesus-y. <laughs> it's sort of a choose-your-own-adventure scenario. So if it helps you, I just invite you to, like, relax your arms, close your eyes, and just listen to what the Spirit might invite you into, if that helps. I think there's some today who need to trust and receive God's rescue, possibly for the first time. You've sat here, and maybe after hearing this teaching, you have questions, but you're considering that you need God to rescue, heal, and save you. It's available. You're welcome, and you're invited into a beautiful life, a beautiful family, and a beautiful story. For others, the invitation may be to sit in silence and hear the Father's voice over who you really are. Take time to ask God, what does it mean for me to be in Christ? And what does it mean for me to be with Christ? Knowing that God wants to speak to us and help us when we have a hard time trusting him. Here's a fun one. Stop walking in the ways of the world and the flesh. The invitation is holiness. To be set apart to God and for God. There are patterns, habits, generational sins, addictions, compulsions that we need to stop walking in. That may look like coming forward to receive prayer, and that may look like going to see a good counselor. For some, I think this means verbally renouncing the world, flesh, and devil. Out loud, actually. Renouncing. There are ways that we can become attached to and then overpowered by things that are meant to be below us. Paul says to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we may prove what is the perfect, acceptable, and good will of God. That means the invite for some is to get out of worldliness and for others to get worldliness out of us. Number four, and then as we clear things out, we need to be filled afresh with the Spirit. Ask God to not just empty things out, but to fill you afresh. Number five, ask God what he's up to and then just join in. 
Jesus said the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. But whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus also said, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater than these because I am going to the father. Jesus joins the father's work and then expects us to join him in it too. The scripture also says that the father anointed Jesus with the spirit and with power. That Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. And the scripture says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. God's expectation, his desire, and his invitation is that those who receive his rescue will join in his work. The gift of rescue is so that we would walk in good works, joining in what he is up to in the world. So in the coming week, find a time to pause and ask God, what is he up to? And then just join in. It could be praying for someone, maybe being generous and meeting a need, showing hospitality, or a thousand other little ways that God is working. Look for signs of God's, God working near your home or in a grocery store or during a meeting or in a conversation. Ask God what he's up to and then join in. This one I feel strongly to ask for freedom from fear of the demonic and for boldness. All week the thought just keeps rattling in my mind and this is kind of stepping out, but that God really wants to deliver some of us from fear of the demonic. And the picture I get is like you're almost being taunted. The fear can be varying degrees, but if that's you, I'd invite you to receive prayer. The scripture says that perfect love casts out all fear because fear involves torment. So may the love love and the spirit of God release us from fear and give us new boldness. Lastly, and I think this is for all of us, intercede. In prayer, we sit with Jesus in the heavenlies and join in God's mission. Our prayers have the power to change things and can actually push back spiritual darkness in our city. I think that the Holy Spirit has, calling some of us, has been calling some of us to level up, so to speak, and walk in what it means to be seated above principalities and powers. There are some easy ways to get started. You, whenever you see something that just doesn't look like God's heart, pray, your kingdom come here. Maybe go on a weekly prayer walk in your neighborhood and through our city. You can serve on the prayer team during response times or come to pre-gathering prayer here on Sundays. Or you can join what we call boiler room prayer every Sunday during all three gatherings. So actually right now, as you're in here, there's people below this stage in the prayer room. They're praying for you. They're praying for our city. They're praying for our church. And what if maybe once a month you said, the way I'm gonna serve my church and I'm gonna serve my city is instead of hearing the teacher, I'm gonna go pray for others. Jesus called his people a house of prayer for all nations. And now is the time for us to be just that. Let's get to work.